When it comes to the major themes that we find in the Bible, well, it doesn't take long for us to discover that love is a foundational focus. Case in point, the Bible is in fact the revelation that helps us to understand how God loves us with an everlasting love. Think about it. The Bible is God's love letter to us. And in the scriptures, he helps us to understand how much he loves us. As a matter of fact, it was the love of God the Father that led him to send his only begotten son so that sinners like us could be saved. Without debate, God loves us. Not only that, but it's in the scriptures where we also learn that the greatest commandments that the Bible uh, contains can be summarized with one simple word, and the word is love. All of the commandments can be summarized with the word love. As a matter of fact, Christians, listen, we've been called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. At the same time, we've also been called to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. With all of this in mind, we must not forget that, well, the believer has also been, not, been called to love our enemies. That's right, we've been called to love our enemies and we've been called to do good to those who persecute us. And I have no doubt that we all recognize how, how difficult this is to imagine loving our neighbors, especially in light of the fact that we all seem to struggle simply loving one another here within our fellowship of faith. And it's for this reason that one anonymous believer summed up this problem with a very simple proverb by declaring, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be a glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's another story. Without debate, it's difficult to love the people who are closest to us. And with that being the case, it's important for us to realize that we really don't know how to love in the way that we ought to love. And with that being the case, it's crucial for every Christian to become believers who are learning how to love one another. Now, with this as the goal, uh, it'll help us to understand that it's here in our text today where we learn that loving believers are charitable believers. Secondly, we'll learn that loving believers are also peaceable believers. Thirdly and finally, we will learn that loving believers are honorable believers. With this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here we find Paul. He's helping the original recipients of this epistle to become loving believers. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I should take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul was praying for the Christians there in Thessalonica so that they might learn how to increase and abound in love to one another and to all. He also elaborated on what it means 
to, to love one another by helping his audience to understand that the Lord is calling every Christian to abstain from every form of sexual immorality as we walk in the love of the Lord because sexual immorality is in conflict or is a contradiction of the Lord's love. Now, here in our text today, we find Paul, he's continuing to elaborate on what it means to love one another, and he does this by encouraging his audience to become those who love one another with brotherly love. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to begin reading there at verse 9, because here Paul declares, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing." Now here in our text today, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica to learn how to love one another. And we've been called to learn to love one another with brotherly love. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the term brotherly love, well, that's translated from the Greek word Philadelphia. Now, I'm sure that most of us associate this Greek word with the city that was founded by William Penn. And yet, if you know anything about the city of Philadelphia, you know there's not much brotherly love happening there. Oh, I applaud them for creating water ice. That is love in a cup. And apparently, you don't know what I'm talking about, so you've never been to Philadelphia. But listen, the, the brotherly love that, that we ought to be uh, enjoying here within our Christian community, well, uh, the, the example, the best example isn't found there in Pennsylvania. No, Philadelphia is actually a word that speaks of the fond affection of fraternity. In order to further grasp the sort of love that Paul was referring to when he used this Greek word Philadelphia, well, it'll help you to know that the word Philadelphia is made up of two root words, the first being phylos and the second being adelphos. And the Greek word phylos, this uh, is the root word for the verb phileo. And phileo is a word that's packed with loving emotion. Phileo love was the, the sort of love that leads a person to cherish and adore the person they love. Phileo love is also an affectionate tenderness which creates that, the fond feelings we have for those that we love. When you think about the person that you love and, and you feel those warm fuzzies, you know, that, that's phileo love. According to Paul, this is the sort of love that we ought to have for one another here at our church. To further grasp my point, I want to consider the second root word that's found within the Greek word Philadelphia. I'm referring to the word adelphos, which refers to the siblings who share the same parents. It's, it's brothers or brothers and sisters. And, and the same word was also used in a national sense. 
Uh, this word is used in a national sense in reference to those who are citizens of the same country. You know, typically those who are the citizens of the same country typically have a, a national love for one another. I mean, not here in America, but, you know, in other, in other countries. That, that tends to be true. In a spiritual sense, the word Adelphos was used of fellow believers who have been born of the same spirit. And, and in this spiritual sense, Christian, listen, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, in a Christian context, Philadelphia is a brotherly love or a familial love that creates a spiritual bond of affection as we begin to realize that our fraternal fellowship is a forever family that is founded upon our mutual faith. With all this in mind, I want to take another look there at 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9. Here again, Paul declares concerning brotherly love. You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. As we take another look at this verse, we can see that Paul didn't feel like this lesson about brotherly love was completely necessary. He says, concerning brotherly love, I don't really need to write to you about this. The reason why is because the message of brotherly love is a message that we've heard from the beginning. If you grew up with siblings, I'm sure you heard your parents tell you, now you guys need to love one another. That was often heard in my home, you know, me and my brother. Well, my brother was an older brother, and what that means is that he was an older brother. And there was constant conflict between me and my brother, and so my parents were constantly saying, love one another. You need to love your brother. We've heard the message of brotherly love since the beginning, and it's a, it's a message that we've even heard from our teachers, both secular and spiritual alike. Without debate, we all know that we've been called to love one another. Even, even those in the progressive left who are you know, fighting for the rights of those that we would consider to be sexually immoral, what's their argument based on? Love. Well, you need to love. Yeah, we all know whether, whether we're believers or unbelievers. We all know that love is crucial for every community. Sadly, I would say that the average person doesn't really know what it means to love. The average person doesn't really understand what real love actually is. And so we can be thankful that the Lord helps us to understand how we ought to love one another. So therefore, we need to learn. We need to learn how to love one another. And with this as the focus, I want to take a moment to point out that the word love, which is found there at the end of verse 9, it's, it's translated from the Greek word agapeo, which actually speaks of an increasing amount of phileo love. Agapeo love is an ever-increasing amount of phileo love. And the same word was also used of those who have a loving regard for the welfare of others. That being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the, this word agapeo, it's actually the verb form of the Greek word agape. And agape is a word that speaks of the charitable love that leads us to sacrifice for the sake of others. 
Agape love is a charitable love that inspires us to make sacrifices for the well-being of others. And what this means is that believers have been called to love one another with a benevolent, sacrificial, and charitable love. In order to put a finer point on this, it'll help you to know that the word charity, it refers to the generosity that we provide to those who are in need. Not only that, but charity is also the assistance. It's the, the support that we provide to those who are struggling and suffering. And knowing that the word is filled, uh, you know, this, this world is actually filled with people who are, in fact, struggling and suffering. Well, the Lord has called every Christian to become the conduits of his charitable love by first learning how to love one another here within our Christian community. Yeah, we need to learn how to love one another. In order for us to go out into the world and become a conduit of the the Lord's love, it'll help us to learn how to love one another here within our community. And, and, you know, it's, it's a lot more difficult than it sounds. With this as the goal, I want to take another look at our text, beginning again at verse 9, because here again Paul declares concerning brotherly love, You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's commending the Christians there in Thessalonica for the way that they had become benevolent believers who were loving one another with the charitable love of the Lord. And according to Paul here, they were not only caring for the needs of those who were attending their own personal church, but their charity was also being extended to all the other, uh, the, all the other churches there in this region of Macedonia. <clears throat> as, as the believers there in Thessalonica, <clears throat> they began to provide support for the new Macedonian churches that were being planted. Now, just to put this into a historical context, it'll help you to know that it was during the second century BC, that's when Rome was you know, invading and conquering the kingdom of Macedon, And with that being the case, you know, the Macedonians, they were at this point in time still suffering from the economic ruin of a failing economy. This was one reason for why the churches uh, there in Macedonia were suffering from deep poverty. That's how Paul described them. That they were struggling with deep poverty. And not only that, but they were also enduring a great trial of affliction after becoming the target of religious persecution. And it was in the midst of these trials and tribulations that the Christians who were at the church in Thessalonica, they decided to start demonstrating their charitable love by providing the support that they could to the rest of the churches who were there in Macedonia. And while Paul commended them for becoming these benevolent believers, we must not fail to notice that he challenged them to continue increasing in this sort of charitable love. As a matter of fact, let's take another look at this encouragement, which we find here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 9. Here Paul again declares, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Now that word increase is translated from a Greek word which refers to affluent abundance. 
It's also a word that was used to describe the overflowing opulence that is excessive in amount. What this means is that Paul was not only commending them for becoming benevolent believers, but he was also challenging them to keep going, to, to, to keep increasing in the amount of charitable love that they were sharing with the Christian brothers and sisters throughout the rest of Macedonia. He's saying, yeah, you've done a great job so far being benevolent. You've demonstrated charitable love by supporting other churches in Macedonia. Don't stop. Keep going, keep giving, keep supporting, keep sharing so that this love would increase more and more to an excessive amount. In order to grasp what this sort of love looks like, I'm going to consider the way that the Apostle John described it in 1 John chapter 3. It's there where he declares, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, the agape love of the Lord, which helps us to become benevolent believers, it's more than just emotional sentiment. Brotherly love that then turns into charitable love It's a love that leads us to share what we have with those who are in need. It's much more than just the warm fuzzies we feel when we do ministry together. It's much more than just the emotional experience that we have when we gather together. It's much more than just the, hey, I love you, bro. Okay, thank you. What does that look like, though? How do we walk that out? How do we actually love one another in the way that we should? Well, according to the scriptures, this sort of charitable love leads us to support one another and share what we have with one another as we endure the trials and the tribulations of this world. And according to John, those who have actually received the agape love of the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ we will become these benevolent believers who are walking in the charitable love of the Lord. And so we see that loving believers are actually charitable believers. Not only that, but loving believers are also peaceable believers. And with this as the focus, I want to continue to consider the encouragement that Paul's presenting here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 9. Here again, Paul declares, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. 
as we take a closer look at the instructions that Paul is presenting here, we must not fail to see the connection between the Christian who is learning to walk in love and the peace we'll enjoy as we simply learn how to live a quiet life. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word quiet, which is found there in the middle of verse 11, it's used of those who attempt to keep the peace as they try to refrain from relational conflicts. What this means is that the loving believer is a Christian who will do their best to keep the peace with others by just minding their own business. Or as we put it when I was a kid, you know, just mind your own beeswax. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in 2 Timothy chapter 2. There he declares, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. In other words, the Christian who is committed to keeping the peace with other believers, they do their best to avoid the foolish and uneducated arguments started by those who just want to create conflict. And knowing that there are Christians in every church who just want to argue about non-essential doctrines, well, we do well to remember that those who are walking in the love of the Lord will avoid entering into these unnecessary arguments, knowing that they're only going to generate strife. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. There he declares, pay no attention to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. In other words, listen, there are many things like fables and endless genealogies that just really aren't worth arguing about. And while I don't mean to suggest that there's a problem with sharing our point of view regarding non-essential issues, it's important for us to realize that we haven't been called to turn molehills into mountains. We have not been called to turn non-essential doctrines into essentials. And yet it's so easy to do this. It's so easy for us to have our pet topic, some non-essential issue, you know, that we just think every Christian has to agree with me on this or, or they're just not a good Christian at all. Be careful with all of that. Because, you know, it can start becoming a, a bit of a, 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 of, a, of a divisiveness to turn non-essentials into arguments that we have to have every single Sunday and every single Wednesday. Now listen, when it comes to essential doctrines, I'm ready to argue all day long. When it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith, those who would attempt to alter these teachings, dismiss or add to these teachings, I'll argue this all day long. And those who want to blur the lines between true biblical Christianity and the Groups that claim to be Christians but aren't, you know, like the, like the, 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 the line between true biblical Christianity and Catholicism, or the line between true biblical Christianity and Mormonism, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Church of Christ, or the list could go on. Those who attempt to blur the lines between these groups, I'm going to argue that all day long. Why? Because these are essential issues. These are not foolish arguments. They are necessary. But when it comes to non-essential issues, when it comes to 
tertiary issues, you know, it's not worth arguing about. And so we should avoid entering into these never-ending debates with those who want to debate debatable things. We've been called to love one another by doing our best to simply keep the peace. And it's for this reason that Paul encouraged his audience to mind their own business. When it comes to these debatable things, mind your own business. If somebody doesn't agree with you on some secondary or tertiary issue, mind your own business. That's between them and God. It's not, it's not essential. So don't make it essential. With this as the goal, I want to consider a concern that Paul shared in his second letter to the church in Thessalonica. If you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's flip forward to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians, well, I want to take a moment to point out that there are times when the Lord will lead us to challenge another believer. It's true. There are times when the Lord will lead us to challenge another believer about, you know, something that's happening in their lives. And, and listen, those who are, are actually walking in faith and, and those who are actually living in love, they're going to offer that accountability according to the leading of the Lord. But then there are those who are really nothing more than sin sniffers who are busily looking for someone to scold. You know, they consider themselves the self-righteous sheriff of the church, and so they're walking around looking for someone, stepping out of line. This seems to be the issue that was happening there at the church in Thessalonica, and it's here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 where Paul addresses this concern. It's verse 11 where Paul declares, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now that word busybodies, it's used of those who were known to go around meddling in the, uh, in the affairs of others. You know, rather than focusing in on their own imperfections, busybodies are those who would rather focus on the imperfections of everyone else and then spend the time that they can, you know, sharing their concerns about those people and their sins with anyone who will listen. The reason why? Well, they prefer scandal and drama over peace and quiet. I blame soap operas and mainly destinos. For this reason that Paul equated busybodies with those who are gossips. As a matter of fact, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5 where he refers to those who learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house or from Facebook account to Facebook account, however you want to render that. And not only are they idle, but they're gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. Now, that word gossip refers to the trifling tattlers who want to share their scandalous stories with anyone who will listen. And it's sad to say that these believers who become busybodies and gossips, well, they're carnal Christians who love to create conflict within their fellowship of faith. And it's sad to say that many disciples have been divided by by these sorts of people. Many relationships 
have been ruined by those who just simply fail to mind their own business. And churches have been shuttered by those who simply fail to, to just walk in the love of the Lord. This sounds like your struggle and you're someone who loves drama and conflict. Well, I encourage you to remember the lesson that Jesus presented in Matthew chapter 7. It's there where he asks, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Is it wrong to remove the speck from your brother's eye? No. Well, that is unless you have a big plank sticking out of your own. Jesus here is saying, hey, look, make sure that, that you've taken the plank out of your own eye before you attempt to help another believer take a little speck out of their eye. He's effectively saying, clean up your own backyard before you look over the fence at your neighbor's. Before we spend time investigating the sins of others like a sin sniffer who's trying to be the sheriff of the church, we ought to take a closer look at our own sinful struggles so that we might learn to judge with righteous judgment. I'm not here to say, judge not lest you be judged. We've been called to judge with righteous judgment. Not as hypocrites, who look past our own sins because we're so busy exploiting and, and you know, pointing out the sins of others. Remove the plank protruding from our own eye first. Then we can begin to help others take the speck out of their eye. We've been called to love one another by minding our own business as we aspire to keep the peace. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 12. It's there where he declares, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Christian, listen, we've been called to do everything we can to live peaceably with everyone around us. And this most certainly includes you know, the, our brothers and our sisters in Christ here at our fellowship of faith. But this as the goal, it's important for us to realize that the Lord is calling us to pay attention to our own problems first, to mind our own business, so that we can walk in the grace of God as we learn how to bear with the imperfections of others. To further grasp my point, let's consider the encouragement that Paul presented in his letter to the church in Ephesus. If you would continue holding your place there in 1 Thessalonians, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that we are all imperfect people. And as imperfect people, we're going to create conflict with others. I have no doubt that everyone here has at some point in time created conflict with somebody else. That's right, relational conflicts are inevitable in every relationship. And, and as we sign up to serve our Savior here at 
you know, Calvary South Austin, well, it's only a matter of time until we have relational conflicts with those we serve side by side with. Some choose to solve this problem by not serving. Others choose to solve this problem by not going to church. Neither of these are good solutions. If you want to learn how to become a believer who is loving, well, then we should follow the instructions that Paul presented here in Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, I therefore... Uh, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Christian, listen, we've been called to love one another with Long-suffering love. It's long-suffering. It's not a short fuse. It's, it's not the quick you know, trip to, to relational conflict. It's, it's being long-suffering as we bear with the imperfections of one another in a way that is loving. Rather than allowing relational conflicts to divide us, Paul is challenging us to learn how to love as we strive or endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And what this means is that those who are learning to love will become peaceable believers who are patient with one another. This brings us to our third and final point because, listen, loving believers are not only charitable believers and loving believers are not only peaceable believers, but loving believers are also honorable believers. And with this as the goal, I want to make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica to become honorable believers. With that, I want to back up. And begin reading once again at verse 9. Here Paul declares concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Now as we take another look here at our text today, we find Paul, he's uh, encouraging his audience to, to realize that the way we love one another not only infects Uh, not only affects our relationships with other believers here within our church, but the love of the Lord should also redefine the way we relate with the people we work with, the people that we interact with beyond the four walls of the church, so to speak. That's why he tells us there in verse 11 that we are to mind our own business as we do what? As we work with our own hands. He's talking about going back out into the workforce. If you work in the secular workforce, then the chances are you work with unbelievers. 
And the way that we walk in love should impact the way that we interact with the unbelievers out there in the world or those, those who are outside, as Paul puts it here in our text today. That Greek word, which is rendered outside, well, it's being used in a metaphorical sense of those who don't belong to the Christian church. The unbeliever is outside the church. And I get it, you know, there are churches that are seeker sensitive and they kind of dumb down the Bible so that they can, you know, somehow appeal to unbelievers because they think that their job is to pack as many unbelievers into the church that they can. And so they have to put secular music up on the stage and they have to, you know, barely teach the Bible at all so that unbelievers aren't offended too much. And listen, that's not the, the Bible's program. And listen, I'm not opposed to anybody inviting unbelievers to church, but listen, church is where believers are getting equipped with the teaching of God's word so that they can accomplish the work of the ministry. I'm not going to dumb it down here or make it less offensive so that an unbeliever can sit here and be entertained. That's not my job. That's not why this building is here. I'm going to teach the word of God line by line, verse by verse, so that the Christian can be equipped to go outside and reach unbelievers. Sure, invite them to church, but listen, you're called to go out and preach the gospel so that they might be saved. I think rather than trying to convince unbelievers to come to church, go lead them to Jesus Christ, and they'll just want to come to church. Amen? At the same time, though, we still have to go out into the world. We still have to work with unbelievers. Everyone who has a secular job, I mean, you, you probably have unbelievers that you work with. And as you walk in love, well, that's going to change the way you interact with them. As a matter of fact, Paul here is telling us to walk properly with those who are outside. In other words, we're to walk properly with those who are rejecting Jesus Christ. And to be clear, the word properly, that's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are behaving in a way that is decent and respectable. The same Greek word was used of those who are living an honorable life. And what this means is that Paul was helping the Christians there in Thessalonica to understand that the believer who is learning to walk in love will behave in an honorable way as they go back out into the world. This was precisely the point that the Apostle Peter was making in 1 Peter chapter 2. There he declares, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation." From this, we can see that the Christian who is living like an unbeliever when they hang out with unbelievers is doing it wrong. The believer who acts like an unbeliever when they're hanging out with unbelievers is not conducting themselves in an honorable way. Listen, if you behave like a believer at church, but then turn around and live like an unbeliever when you're in the world... That's not honorable. 
It's hypocrisy. And the unbelievers know it's hypocrisy. That's why one of the biggest arguments that unbelievers use against the church is that, well, the church is so you know, filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Well, where do they learn that? Well, from the Christians who are still going with them to happy hour. These are dishonorable disciples who are bringing shame upon the good name of our Savior. And it's for this reason that Peter encouraged us to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. Peter elaborates on this point in 1 Peter chapter 4, where he declares this. He says, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. According to Peter, the lives of those who trust in Jesus Christ should begin to change in such a way that it's going to cause the unbelievers we still know to think that we've lost our minds. Do the unbelievers who knew you before you came to Christ think that you are strange now? Do they think that you've lost your mind? Because if not, what does that say about your walk? Those who are living for the lusts of the flesh can't imagine another person choosing to abstain from all the things that they love. They can't imagine someone choosing to abstain from lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And yet, this is exactly what happens as the unbelievers in this world see their friends come to Christ and their lives begin to change. They think, What is wrong with this person? I remember it was shortly after my own conversion to Christ when a friend of mine came to me sharing his concerns about the direction that my life was headed in. He was concerned that I was becoming a religious zealot. He was concerned that I had joined a cult. And he tried to convince me that Christianity, I I didn't need Christianity because it's just a crutch for those who are weak. He's trying to convince me I didn't need it. It was at that point in time when I challenged him to realize that Christianity is not a crutch. My faith in Jesus Christ set me free from the carnal crutches of drugs and alcohol. I had been walking around on crutches since my mom passed away, self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. Those were my crutches. When I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, he gave me the spiritual strength to stand so that I no longer needed those crutches. Sadly, many of my friends started speaking evil of me, started mocking me and ridiculing me for no other reason than I was going to Bible studies rather than to the bar. I was going to the church rather than going to the clubs. They thought it was strange. They thought they, thought they, they couldn't believe it. I was hoping and praying that my old friends would embrace the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, but my connections with them continued to dis- disappear as they continued to take more and more offense to my newfound faith. I didn't break off my relationships with them. They broke off their relationships with me. Why? Because they didn't want to hear about Jesus anymore.
And so I would hear. I would hear about the way that they were mocking me and ridiculing me. And so every time I would see my friends again, I would say, you know, I know you're mocking me. Just get it right. Here's what I'm saying. I just want you to mock me correctly. I would break it down for them very simply. But they thought I'd lost my mind. With all this in mind, I can't help but to remember something that the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. There he declares, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Christian, listen, the born-again believer who is conducting themselves in an honorable way will soon become the target of those who are easily offended by the gospel message. And you better believe that the gospel message is an offense to those who are perishing. They don't want to hear it. And if you're doing what you should by living an honorable life, then you're going to be sharing that good news with them. And as a result, they will begin to ridicule you. And so if all men are speaking well of you, if everybody you know, including the unbelievers, are all speaking well of you, Jesus says, woe to you. Something's not right. Because those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And knowing that they will curse us and spitefully use us and ridicule us, Jesus says, love them. Now, our flesh wants to fight fire with fire. You're going to talk about it me. I'm going to talk about, 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 about you, you know, and throw fire, you know, fight fire with fire. But the Lord says, no, love them. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who use you. With this as the goal, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13. It's there where he declares, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Christian, listen, those who are truly learning how to love others in the way that we should, we will also begin to behave ourselves in a way that is honorable, in a way that is respectable and decent. And with this as the goal, it's important for us to realize that as we set out to live an honorable life, that there can be no real communion between light and darkness. You walk into a dark room, the minute you turn on the light, the darkness is gone. And if you're walking in the light of the Lord, then you can't really have communion with darkness. And if you're trying to hide the light of the Lord in your life so that you can fit in with unbelievers, it's not honorable. There can be no fellowship between righteousness and lawlessness. And if your relationships are still in connection with unbelievers and they don't see you know, any issues with the way you're living, 
Are you living in an honorable way before them? And if not, then I encourage you to love those who are lost by putting on the armor of light and allowing the light of the Lord to impact the darkness in the lives of those who are still rejecting Jesus Christ. We've been called to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable with those who are outside. And at the same time, we've also been called to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable with those who are inside, or in other words, those who believe. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the challenge that Paul presented in Romans chapter 13. So if you would, let's turn to the book of Romans. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 13. As you make your way to the 13th chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to point out that the word honorable It not only speaks of those who are behaving in a way that is respectable and decent, but it's also a word that speaks of those who are honest and trustworthy. With that being the case, I believe that the honorable Christian is then a loving Christian. Why? Because this is the one thing that we owe to one another. Now, to explain what I mean, let's consider the encouragement that Paul presents here in Romans chapter 13. Look with me there, beginning at verse 8. Here Paul declares, Owe no one anything except what? To love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. According to Paul, we've been called to become believers who are sure to pay all of the debts that we owe. He says, owe no one anything. And so we should make good on our debts. We should pay off all of our financial debts uh, as as we uh, have contracted to, to pay it off. Not only that, though, but we should also pay off the spiritual debt that we owe, which is this, to love one another. Those who have received the agape love of God now have a spiritual debt, which is to then become a conduit of his love that should be extended to others. And so Christian, listen, we all here owe all the other believers in this room the agape love of the Lord. Why? Because we've cashed in on it. We've received his agape love, and as a result, now we owe it to one another. You don't get to to shortchange me. I don't get to rip you off and withhold that love. We owe it, and so the honorable Christian will do what? Make good on what they owe. We've been called to be honorable believers by settling our debt every single time we see one another. And we do this by loving one another. As we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to remind you that every believer has been called to learn how to love. And the implication of this is that we don't really know how to love, do we? I mean, when it comes to the agape love of the Lord, there's a learning curve that we're still in the middle of. 
there's still a lot that we don't know about what it looks like to love one another in the way that we should. And so we should be humble enough to recognize that we're still in the middle of this learning curve. So let's continue to learn. Let's continue to learn how to love one another. I'm reminded of the traditional story of the Christian who came to the Apostle John because in the end days of his life, the Apostle John continued to teach the same lesson over and over again. Love one another, love one another, love one another. And according to the tradition, one Christian came to him and said, when when are you going to teach us something else? We've heard this before. When are you going to teach us something new? The Apostle John responded and said, When you do this, then I'll teach you something new. How convicting as we begin to realize that we don't really love one another in the way that we should. And so we need to continue learning to love one another. And with this as the goal, I remind you, loving believers are charitable believers who are graciously sharing what we can share with those who are struggling. Loving believers are also peaceable believers who are patiently bearing with the imperfections of others, knowing that we too are imperfect. And loving believers are honorable believers who are fulfilling the law of the Lord as we pay forward the love that we've received from him. And as we consider these three aspects of what it looks like to love one another, I have no doubt that we all still have a great deal to learn about the right way to walk in love. And so I encourage you to remember that the Lord Jesus is the source of this everlasting love. Listen, I'm not asking you to conjure up something within your soul that that you'll never be able to conjure up. I'm not asking you to create some sort of love that you just can't seem to find in your heart. Within our fallen flesh, this love does not exist. That's why we must receive it from the Lord first. We must receive his agape love so that then we can become a conduit of this love as we extend it to others. And it's for this reason that I encourage you in closing, let's seek the everlasting love of our Savior Jesus each and every day. And in this way, he will help us to learn how to become loving believers. Let's pray.